0: You're listening to the Faith Unpacked Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Faith Unpacked Podcast with Jamie and Jason. This is episode 193, and today we've got a special guest with us, Dr. William Lyle who uh, I got to meet when he came to speak at the Options Pregnancy Resource Annual Banquet. And he was very gracious and offered to come on the the podcast that we do here to talk about the the pro-life position as a doctor. And so this is a very unique perspective that he brings to the table. Um, And we're going to be talking about all the medical advancements and a lot of different things that he has been doing. But first of all, thank you, Dr. Lyle, for coming on this podcast with us. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I mean, my
2: priority in medicine is doing everything that I can to defend and protect my patients. And uh, my patients are not just my pregnant moms. But my patients include their babies on the inside. In fact, when I have a pregnant mom come into my office, I actually have two patients. And if she has twins, I have three. And I've delivered quadruplets. When You have five patients that are walking into your office on every visit. So whatever I can do to help my patients out, including the ones on the inside of the womb, is really my goal in life. That's great
1: yeah and we're excited to get into some of these these medical advancements we want to talk about, but first, we like to hear our mm-hmm. guests share a little bit of testimony about how they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and so yeah, why don't you just talk about that and and uh talk about the difference he's made? Well, I was
2: blessed to be uh the child of uh god believing Christian parents, and uh they're the ones who led me to the Lord, and I can still remember. Being eight years old, and life changed a little bit with my parents and my relationship and the way they were raising me. They had read some book, and life changed. And that book happened to be Dare to Discipline by Dr. James Dobson. And only God could work it out that 40 years later, I am actually have been on his radio show, and he's a close friend. And uh, so it just was always part of who I was. Of course, abortion became legal when I was eight years old in 1973. I was living in New Jersey and even from a young age, my parents always taught us that no matter what you decide to do in life, you also have to think, how do I use my profession as a ministry? How can I serve the kingdom in my profession? So even as kids, I can remember going and serving meals at Pregnancy Resource Center banquets, and uh, now I'm one of the speakers on those banquets. So we are blessed to be able to give a lot of information at banquets for centers, to legislatures, to governors. And it all really started off in 1999 when I had just finished my residency training. And of course, when you've been in college for four years, medical school for four years, and residency for four years, 12 years in school, and it's like, now it's time to get a job. And the practice that we took over was in Pensacola, Florida. At that time, it was the largest provider of abortions In the entire panhandle and had been for decades we had the physician who was the abortionist sign a restrictive covenant a non-compete where he couldn't practice any medicine at all for two years we took over the practice and on day one we stopped all abortions and all abortion referrals and as of now that was 1999 right now we don't have a single abortion provider here in the city of Pensacola so we found a way to use our profession as a kingdom service, and we actually travel around the country with that abortion equipment, demonstrating the evils of what abortion actually is, but also showing the amazing technology of how we are treating these babies in the womb as patients with modern medicine.
1: Yeah, and, and obviously, with the turn of events last year with Roe v. Wade being overturned, and just the the cultural milieu we're in right now, we know this is a hot topic in, in more than one level. People are. Uh, are speaking out more on one level and some others are feeling uh that they they can't speak on it because they don't want to be labeled. But one of the things I love about your approach to speaking to this issue is you don't come at it with uh angry condemnation or or uh a heated diatribe. Instead, you bring to the table scientific facts. You're bringing um your own profession as a doctor where you have been involved with a lot of these uh incredible medical procedures that we're going to learn about, and I, I'm sure a lot of our guests have never even heard that these kind of procedures are actually being done on the unborn, those who have not yet uh, come into this world uh, as far as outside the womb, um, and that is the same segment segment of our uh, society that right now, in, in much of the country still, in much of the world, uh, it is legal to kill them for virtually any reason. And so we want to talk about that and, and maybe maybe just start with your some of the, the coolest things that you get to see as a doctor that uh us who are not in the medical profession um are not privy to.
2: Well, just ultrasound is an amazing tool in and of itself. I mean, when I started my residency, you know, that back in nineteen ninety-five. Ultrasound was there, but it's nothing like it is now. Now we have ultrasound that is in strip malls and you can go and you can see your baby and get portraits just like going to Olin Mills or something like that and get portraits of your baby and you can see your baby grow. But one of the fastest growing forms of party is now the gender reveal party. And what's amazing is maybe you could pay for an ultrasound at 18 weeks, and you could maybe get a little sneak preview and know if it's a boy or a girl on the inside. Now we have a blood test. We have a blood test that can be done seven weeks after conception on the mom, and it's called a panorama. It's called cell-free DNA, where a simple blood test from the mom's arm is done seven weeks after conception, and with more than 99% accuracy, the labs can actually find little fragments of the baby's DNA that happens to have crossed through the placenta, into the mother's circulation. And we find these little fragments of DNA, and we can do lots of studies, just like um, if somebody were to go to Ancestry and Me or 23andMe.com, we can actually, with 99% accuracy, tell you if that is a boy or is a girl. Not if it's going to be a boy or going to be a girl, but what is the gender of that baby. And what's amazing with today's society is we do this blood test, and guess what? We only have one, two choices as far as the results. It's either a boy or it's a girl. There is nothing else as far as answers other than that. So seven weeks after conception, somebody can actually get a simple blood test and find out if it's a boy or a girl. And that's amazing advances in technology, but technology is not always good. It's all the way that technology is used. And one of the ways that technology can be used for evil is that You can take the abortion pill and abort a baby with 98 to 99% efficiency. It'll kill the baby up to 10 weeks gestation. So if somebody really did their timing right, they could actually do the blood test to see if it's a boy or a girl. And if it wasn't the gender that they wanted, they would still have time to take the abortion pill, abort that baby with fingers, toes, and a heartbeat, and then try again in two months. So technology is advancing. Technology is a tool But some people use tools for good and some people use tools for evil. So ultrasound has been one of the biggest advances. But, you know, even since my residency, we were just starting to really treat the babies on the inside as patients. A lot of times we would diagnose something that was abnormal and we'd see it, but we couldn't do anything about it. Now, there's a condition where moms will have antibodies. First visit that a mom comes into our office We do lots of blood work. And one of those things that we look into are antibodies. And mothers can develop antibodies against certain blood types. So if mom's blood type happens to be RH negative, but she's been exposed to RH positive blood, she has antibodies which will attack RH positive blood. Well, if the baby in the womb has RH positive blood, her antibodies can actually cross over through the placenta to the baby and start to attack the baby's blood. It just says, you are foreign. It's like if somebody got the wrong type, blood type kidney, your body and immune system is going to attack it. Well, years ago, we didn't have anything that we could do about it. We'd see babies die in the womb. We'd figure out what happened. But, you know, what do you do? Well, now we have the technology where if the baby's blood count is dropping, we can actually give that baby a life-saving blood transfusion. And we do this routinely around the country. And it's called a PUBS. Uh, peri-umbilical blood sampling, where we can actually guide a needle with an ultrasound, guide it through the skin of the mother, through the wall of the uterus, go right up to the vasculature of the placenta and to the umbilical cord, and we can actually give that baby a life-saving blood transfusion. And people say, well, where do you get this magic baby blood? It's like, it's not baby blood. If you had a blood drive at your hospital or your church or your work and you have O-negative blood, we can use your O-negative blood to save a life of the baby in the womb. And that's amazingly fulfilling the greatest commandment. Remember when the Pharisees thought they'd trick up Jesus, and they asked Jesus, they said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. So if your next door neighbor said, hey, I need a blood transfusion, or I'm going to die, of course, we're going to treat our neighbor as ourselves. I'm going to give them you to my blood. Well. When you're donating blood and you have O-negative blood and we use your O-negative blood to save the life of the baby in the womb, that's fulfilling the greatest commandment. You are giving that unit of blood to your neighbor, not to the mom who is on the outside. You're giving this to your neighbor, the baby that's on the inside. So we're doing blood transfusions. But now the surgeries that we are doing on the inside of the womb are just mind-boggling. We are giving medications to babies to control their heart rate. Or sometimes we'll see a baby that has a heart rate of 240, 250, and a normal heart rate for a baby is about 120, 150. But when the heart rate gets real high, the baby can actually go into heart failure. But before, we would just see the baby dying because the heart was going too fast. Well, we couldn't just give mom a huge amount of heart medication to lower the baby's heart rate because it's going to have an effect on the mom as well. So we can now actually give doses of medication, either inject it into the baby's abdomen or actually even put it in the fluid that surrounds the baby because the baby swallowed that fluid. And we can actually control a baby's heart rate with a medication that we gave specifically to the baby. So if we can give a medication to control the heart rate of a baby, if we can give blood transfusions, then they're a patient and a patient is a person, no matter how small and a little bit later, we can go on to how we treat them surgically as well because the advances there are happening every month across the country.
1: Yeah, I think that's that. that's your tagline, right? That every patient is a person no matter how small. And that's such a powerful argument because nobody argues against that today. All patients have rights, right? That is like a universal in healthcare. That is like the number one thing, protect patients' rights. And so that brings it back to, okay, so now if we have, Someone who is actually being treated as a patient in the womb, what do you do with that? How could you not consider that a patient and then in de- deserving all these rights? So maybe talk a little bit about um, some of these. I know you, you mentioned to me before about the Cleveland Clinic situation where there was a removal of a tumor at 27 weeks. Oh, this yeah. was absolutely phenomenal.
2: And during the mom's pregnancy when she was seeing her regular OBGYN, on the ultrasound, the anatomy ultrasound around 22, 23 weeks, when they're looking at all the structures of the heart, lungs, kidney, spine, bladder, brain, they noticed that there was a tumor, you know, right inside the baby's heart. And the baby's heart that early on is about the size of my thumb. And this tumor was about the size of my thumbnail, but the tumor was actually starting to affect the way the heart was pumping blood. And the way the tumor was growing, it's called a teratoma. If they didn't Remove this tumor; the baby was going to die. So they had two options that they discussed with the parents. Number one, they could do surgery and do a C-section and deliver the baby at 27 weeks pregnant, and then they would do the open-heart surgery. But now you have a 27-week preemie that just had open-heart surgery. I mean, it's tough enough for a preemie, you know, just to be delivered, but then to do open-heart surgery—real tough to recover. You're recovering from prematurity and open-heart surgery. So the second option they gave the parents was removing the tumor in the heart while the baby was still on the inside. And there are so many amazing things. First, they had about a dozen doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, tech circulators that were in the Cleveland Clinic. Mom was 27 weeks pregnant when they decided to do the surgery. Mom had her own anesthesiologist. Mom had an epidural. So mom was comfortable, but they didn't want to give mom anesthesia because that would cross over to the baby and they didn't want to affect the baby with maternal anesthesia. So mom had an epidural. She's perfectly comfortable. The surgeons made an incision in the skin of the mother, just like a mini C-section. Then they made an incision in the wall of the uterus, just like a mini C-section to get access to the baby. So they're doing heart surgery on the baby. So to get access to the baby's chest, they brought out first the right arm Then they brought out the left arm and they're out to the side, but they didn't just make the incision in the baby's chest. What was amazing is they actually had a second anesthesiologist, a pediatric anesthesiologist that specifically treats children and babies. And this anesthesiologist took the right hand and actually started an IV in the hand of the baby. Baby was receiving IV fluids baby was receiving micro doses of fentanyl a narcotic pain medicine to give the baby an anesthetic so it didn't feel pain but the baby also was given little tiny doses of norcuron which is a paralytic because if somebody's going to be doing heart surgery on you you don't want a baby moving around so the baby had its own anesthesiologist and once the baby had been given medication the pediatric cardiovascular surgeon made an incision in the baby's chest opened the baby's chest removed this tumor from the baby's heart. And almost immediately when the baby's tumor was removed, the heart started to function and pump normally. Once they realized the baby was stable, they closed the baby's chest, they put suture in the baby's skin, you know, there on the chest, they removed the IV, they tucked both hands and arms back on the inside, they closed the uterus, they closed the skin, and then they followed the mom, they followed that baby as the baby healed on the inside, And at 37 weeks, I mean, 10 weeks later, they did a C-section and delivered that baby. And that baby's first name is Ryland. That baby's doing well today. So when we talk to medical students and we tell them this story, it's like, if we can do open heart surgery and blood transfusions on the baby on the inside, do they meet the criteria and the definition of being a patient? Because one of the rules that we're all taught in medical school Is first of all is a Latin phrase called prima non nocere, which means first of all, do no harm. The second thing we learn is that a patient is a person is entitled to respect and bodily integrity. So if I can prove that the babies in the womb are patients, then we need to treat them with respect and we need to provide and meet their needs by definition. So if we're doing blood transfusions, doing open heart surgery, they are clearly a patient. And as patient, they have rights. And when it comes to rights, we all say my rights, my rights, and, you know, especially college students as well, you're violating my rights. Well, let's talk about rights. Who do our rights come from? Uh, you know, if our rights came from the government, then if the government gives you your rights, then the government can take away your rights. Clearly, in the Constitution, our rights come from God. You know, we're endowed by our creator, it says in the Declaration of Independence, and that was with a capital C. We're endowed by our creator, capital C, with certain unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So our rights come from God. The role and duty of good government is to protect and defend those rights which came from God. So a patient is a person, no matter how small. And clearly the babies in the womb, the pre-born are patients. And you'll hear me use the term pre It's like, why does he keep saying pre-born? Everybody else says unborn. Well, it comes down to this. Words matter. Definitions matter. Before you send your child to school, you send them to preschool. Because the normal expectation when they go to preschool is that they're going to go to school. Before you watch the Super Bowl, you know, on Sunday, you're not going to watch the ungame show. You're going to watch the pregame show because the pregame show, but the normal expectation is then you're going to watch the game. So I use the term preborn because the normal expectation is that baby in the womb is preborn, and the normal course of nature is that they go from preborn to being born. So words matter, definitions matter, and if they are a patient, they are a person, and if they are a person, they have rights, and it's our duty as a good government, it's our duty as a physician to protect our patients and defend their rights.
1: Yeah, that's that's powerful. I mean, it's. It's something else when people you know i and i've I've talked to folks who um have had to listen to physicians uh recommend abortion because of things like uh birth defects uh, that have been identified in the womb uh, like spina bifida and um that alone is one area I know that there's been some advancements you talked about this before, so maybe. Take us through some of the things that can be done for a patient that has been diagnosed with spina bifida, sure. uh, a preborn patient, that is.
2: We can diagnose spina bifida, and if you remember, spina bifida is when there is a defect in the baby's spine, uh, and we can see that clearly in ultrasound. And it affects oh, twelve hundred, a couple thousand kids a year, and we have thousands of children who are dealing with the the effects of spina bifida, you know, in the United States. It can make them lose control of their bladders, lose control of their bowels, and sometimes these kids can't even walk at all because of this defect in the spine. So it used to be that we would see it on ultrasound and say, well, when the baby's delivered, we'll try and fix it on the outside. We did that for decades. And then over 25 years ago, they started to think about, well, you know what? Why don't we surgically correct it while the baby's still on the inside? You might remember a picture a couple decades ago of a hand sticking out through the little hole in the uterus. Well, that was a kid's name was Samuel Armas, and Samuel had spina bifida, and he was one of the early kids. Samuel's now over 20 years of age. We all remember that picture of that baby. Samuel's over 20 years of age, and they opened up the womb and they fixed the defect that was in Samuel's spine. Samuel now can play basketball, goes whitewater rafting. I mean, he's a normal, healthy kid. So that was phase two, where we started to, you know, do surgery on the inside of the womb. And then a couple of surgeons said, you know what, we're doing laparoscopic surgeries all the time. I mean, it used to be you've got your gallbladder out. It was an incision that was 12 inches long on your right side under your ribs, and you're in the hospital seven days, 10 days, and it was a long recovery. Now you go into the hospital, you get... And a laparoscope put in, four Band-Aids later, the gallbladder's out, and you're in the drive through at Chick-fil-A two hours later. So laparoscopy is now being used on the babies in the womb as well. And there are fetoscopic surgeons which are using a fetoscope to actually go into the womb, and with small instruments, they are actually repairing spina bifida in the womb. So that was the next generation. But then there's a doctor named Dr. Diana Farmer, and she's at UC Davis in California. And she was thinking, you know what, we're doing open surgery to repair spina but We're doing fetoscopic surgery. She goes, I wonder if we can fix it there on the inside. And she was very familiar in her research team had done a lot of research with stem cells. And where did the stem cells come from? Well, first, they tried using stem cells. And some researchers are doing stuff with stem cells from aborted babies which is horrible. You don't afford a baby to harvest its organs to use to help somebody else out because that's an individual creating the image of God at that moment of conception. But then they had the idea, well, why don't we use something called mesenchymal stem cells? So where do mesenchymal stem cells come from? They come from the placenta after a baby is born, where most people, you deliver your baby, you love and you kiss your baby, but they ask you, do you want to take the placenta home? No, nobody, very, very few people even wanted to look at the thing, let alone touch it. But they realized they could harvest stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells, from the placenta that had already been discarded. Well, what is a stem cell? A stem cell is like a third grader, where this kid in third grade can be anything they want to be. They want to be an athlete, they want to be a doctor, they want to be an attorney, they want to be a teacher, they want to be a politician. The world is their oyster. They can do whatever they want. Well, that's what a stem cell is. A stem cell is sitting there saying, I just need some guidance. Give me some direction on what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. So Dr. Farmer took these stem cells that were harvested from placentas, and she put them on something called dura, which is the coating that goes around our spinal cord. And she put these little patches with, that were seeded with stem cells, and she went in with a fetuscope, and she applied these little patches directly to the spina bifida defect, these stem cells now had direction. They had guidance. They had instructions on what they were supposed to do. Not only are these kids doing well, but the early research is showing, in fact, it's called the CURE trial because this might not just be a treatment for spina bifida. This might actually be a cure for spina bifida. So California just recently gave them an additional $20 million to research transplanting little stem cells into spina bifida defects at UC Davis. But what's crazy is California spends $20 million to help these tiny babies in the womb and do this miraculous treatment to cure spina bifida and treat them as a patient. But then California also is designating $20 million to fly women from pro-life states to California, where they'll provide them an abortion. They'll even provide housing. And this is what's really crazy. They're even providing childcare for their other kids while they get their abortion. Then they'll fly them back to Alabama, Mississippi, or wherever they flew in from. So how can you have millions, tens of millions of dollars going to treat the pre-born in the womb as patients, yet also spend tens of millions of dollars to fly people from outside of California into California to abort their baby? I mean, I've been to California. They got a lot of issues—the homelessness and all the problems they have. They don't—they're spending twenty million dollars to fly people from other states. They need to look at themselves. But if you're treating the preborn as patients in the womb, and you're curing spina bifida, then that is a patient, and the patient is a person and has rights, no matter how small.
0: You—you you gotta wonder, or I—I I imagine you—you mm-hmm. um, you have some real struggle with the fact that you hear all the time, Oh, follow the science, obey the science, listen to the science. Uh And then you'll see people on the pro abortion side. I'm thinking of, you know, in my congressional district where I live, we just elected a woman who ran an ad saying, if, if you aren't able to have an abortion, then she can't have a baby, right? Like as if there's some like logic to this kind of thinking that, uh, and and they just spout these things off as if they're actual facts, and then they turn around and accuse pro-life people of being dumb and and not you know understanding science or anything like this. And you know I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking, wow, this is all amazing. And most of this I've never ever heard before. But we're also our listeners can't see this because this is obviously audio recording. But right. uh, in in the video here, we see behind you all of your degrees and certificates and you know, all these things. I mean, point being, this is not the belief of dumb people. This is just simply oh, doing well. exactly what they've told us to do, which is follow the science. Well, let's talk about science. We really need to add
2: one adjective, to that, and that's follow the true science. God is the designer and the author and the creator of all science. So all true science will defend God's preborn. I mean, you look at Genesis one twenty six, where God has created hundreds of billions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, and even just look at the earth, and you see all the mountains, all the trees, all the rivers, all the streams, all the mammals, all the bird, all the fish. And then in Genesis one twenty six, God kind of pauses, looks around at this whole universe that he's created, and he said in Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image. And that is not just Adam. That is, all of us are created in the image of God. And the only thing that makes sense is that we are created in the image of God, not when I deliver a baby at two o'clock in the morning. The big event that occurs is the moment of conception. And even when we look at that moment of conception, when you have one egg and one sperm come together, there are 200 million other sperm that are all trying to get a gold medal swimming and getting into the egg. But God designed something so that only one sperm gets onto the inside, and there's actually a visible shield that as soon as that first sperm gets on the inside, the shield goes up around the egg. There's 200 million other swimmers who are trying to get in, but the shield is called a zone of Pallus, and it says, nope, no moss. We got our gold medalist. There is no silver. There is no bronze. One gets in. That's it. And so Michael Phelps makes it in, and all the others, 200 million of them are just losers And But what's amazing is when you look at that amazing chemical reaction of the zone of pellucida going up, there are zinc ions, there are potassium ions, there are chloride ions going in and out of the membrane. And at that moment, when all these ions are going in and out, if you look with the right frequency of light, you can actually see a flash of light. And that flash of light is the moment of conception. That's when we are created in the image of God. So if you look at it's core foundation. People say, well, what's the whole deal? I mean, what is abortion really? Well, if you've ever seen somebody stomp on the American flag or burn the American flag, you're seeing what abortion is all about. What is the American flag? Does it, you know, represent and is it created in the image? Does it represent the image of the United States? Sure. You see old glory, you see the stars and stripes, red, white, and blue. It represents this is the image of the United States. So if somebody, hates the United States. They hate what it stands for. It hates the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and it being founded on godly biblical principles. If they hate the United States, they can't destroy the United States. So what do they do? They stomp and they burn the American flag because the American flag represents the image of the United States. If, we are, if God said himself in Genesis one that at that moment of conception we are created in the image of God, abortion at its most basic foundation is an attack against God. They can't destroy God, so they want to attack that image of God. You see that in the Old Testament with child sacrifice. You see that in the Old Testament when, you know, Pharaoh is trying to kill the babies. You see that with Herod. When Herod You know, was trying to kill Jesus, so he killed all those babies just to get rid of them, to kill that image of God. So abortion at its basic foundation is an attack on that image of God, and it is our role and it is our duty as the church that this is a spiritual battle, and our duty is to defend and protect that image of God. That's why this has got to be coming from the pulpits. This is a spiritual battle. Satan rejoices whenever a baby dies because that was the image of God. When a woman is contemplating abortion, Satan rejoices. When a woman goes into a pregnancy resource center and with just telling them the truth and that they love her and they will help her, and she changes her mind and she decides not to abort that baby, Satan yells because he has lost that victory of killing that image of God. When a woman takes the abortion pill, Satan celebrates and he just says, yes, I've destroyed destroyed another image of God. But what's amazing is we have a three-day window when a woman makes that wrong choice and she's taking the abortion pill and there's a 98% chance that that baby is going to die. We have a three-day window where we can safely reverse the effect of the abortion pill. I've tried this 17 times in my practice and I've been successful 13 times. Well, we have a three-day window to successfully reverse it. Well, what other thing happened in three days? Did Satan rejoice 2,000 years ago when all of a sudden he wanted to destroy God? He wanted to destroy Jesus. So Satan had him tried with a mock trial, and then he had him beaten, he had him whipped, and then he had him put on a cross, and then he had nails in his hand and in his feet. And then at the end, you know, Jesus said, it is finished. He took his last breath. They thrust a spear into his chest. He was dead. And they brought him down from the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. And Satan and his minions celebrated because Jesus, God, was dead. But then what was the window three days later? Three days later, with this multi-ton rock rolled in front of the tomb and with uh, a seal and Roman guards put up, the women went to the to the tomb. They looked inside the tomb and the, the stone had been rolled away and there was no Jesus there on the inside. It was just a grave cross. The uh, The Roman soldiers, they yelled, no. Satan yelled, no. But the women, what did they yell? They yelled, he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. So this is just so similar. This is a spiritual battle, and you don't send politicians in to fight a spiritual battle. This battle for the preborn, the image of God, needs to be led by the church, and that is the role of the pastors. If we're not going to have people hear the truth about abortion from the pulpits, then where are we supposed to hear it? But the other message that's important to hear from our pulpits is this is not a finger-pointing message of condemnation. We've all done wrong. We've all made decisions that we regret. We've all done things that we regret. I mean, look at Paul. Paul was running around giving the thumbs up when for Christians to be persecuted and stoned. I mean, he was there when Stephen was being stoned to death, and he's given the thumbs up and holding their clothes. Yet Paul, after an amazing, you know, uh, you know, reaction to Jesus himself. Paul said, forget about those things which lay behind and press on towards what's ahead. LifeWay came out with a study just recently, and it showed that in the evangelical church, 18% of the men and the women had personally been involved in an abortion. And in the Catholic church, it went up as high as 24%. So this is not a problem outside of the church. There is a message that needs to be coming from our pulpit that, yes, abortion is wrong. It is an attack on the image of God and that a patient is a person no matter how small. But it's also a message of forgiveness because everybody needs healing after being involved in abortion. Healing only comes through forgiveness and true forgiveness only comes through the blood of Christ. You know, when we talk about the abortion pill and reversing the effect of the abortion pill, mom takes the abortion pill and it's up to 10 weeks gestation as opposed to the morning after pill, which is 72 hours. So the abortion pill should really be called the 70 morning average pill because it's up to 10 weeks' gestation. But we can successfully reverse it. Well, how do we do that? Well, the abortion pill works by blocking a very important hormone called progesterone. Progesterone stands for it's a progestational steroid hormone. This is the hormone that keeps a a mom pregnant. It says we're going to need a kind of a new full-time job. We're going to divert resources. We're going to relax the uterus to let it get bigger. We're going to send more nutrition to the baby, more oxygen. The abortion pill blocks that hormone called progesterone. So it would be like if I'm scuba diving and somebody turns off the the regulator on my scuba tank, we're suffocating that baby over a three-day course. Well, we can give that mom a medication called Prometrium, bring that progesterone level up. And my wife and I always pay for it when we do this here in town. And it costs us about $109. So the baby is heading to death over those three days. But if we can get involved within that three-day window and have the mom start on that progesterone, we are spending $109, and we are literally buying back that life of that baby. Well, that's the same message that needs to come from the pulpit. It's a message of forgiveness, but it's also a message of redemption. Because even though 98% of those babies are heading to death, 100% of us, men, women, everybody, you know, has failed in the eyes of God, and we are just worthless. We have sinned, and we've fallen short of the glory of God, but we are redeemed. Are we bought back and redeemed with $109 worth of progesterone? No, we're redeemed with something much more precious, that's the of Jesus Christ. So it is the perfect message on redemption is. It's an opportunity to heal and forgive and the church needs to be engaged. Yes, the politicians are invited to come along. Yes, the doctors should be using their technology and their science to help defend the preborn. but this is a spiritual battle. You know, we think about putting on the whole armor of God. We look at the the Pregnancy Resource Center does. Yes, they counsel the woman. They meet their needs, provide them with formula, sometimes provide them with housing, tell them that Jesus loves them. Well, do you need to put on the whole armor of God? Do you need it? A, a sword, do you need a helmet? Do you need a shield to be nice to people? No. You need armor when you're going into combat. So you put on armor. This is a battle against Satan himself. He wants to destroy the the image of God. So this is where we need to put on the armor because armor is not needed to do nice things for people who are in crisis Armor is for defeating evil and the evil one and Satan and his minions and that is where the battle really lays.
0: Well, we'd obviously love to uh, keep this conversation going, but uh, we're running out of time here. I do want, though, uh, to close out the episode to give you the opportunity to speak specifically to those listening that are are sitting there going, well, yeah, but I don't know all the stuff that Dr. Lyle knows, or, you know, I'm a man, so I don't have any right to speak into these issues that, that should just be a woman's thing, or... I, I'm i personally pro-life, but I can't make, you know, I can't put my conviction on other people. You know, all these very common uh, statements that we hear all the time uh, speak to that, specifically to our brothers and sisters in Christ listening sure. that maybe wrestle with those kind of uh, objections or excuses. Well, first of all, when it comes to
2: men, men, you have been designed by God to be a defender and a protector. We have a Bible study called Micah 6-8 that meets here in Pensacola every Friday morning at six fifteen. Our primary mission is to defend the pre-born. We just had our annual 5K run. We raised over $12,000 that day for a pregnancy resource center. When you see evil, you need to uh defend those who are being attacked by that evil if you saw a child that was being sexually assaulted or a child that was being beaten you wouldn't say well it's not my child i'm not going to get involved in this i'm not going to get engaged you know when you say well that's a political thing you know i'm not going to get involved with that we are commanded to get involved in politics i mean look at shadrach meshach and abednego why were they thrown into the fiery furnace that was because they engaged in a political battle. Daniel in the lion's den, you know, because this was a political battle. You can't pray. And Daniel said, the heck are you going to tell me I can't pray? I'm going to pray. John the Baptist. Why did John the Baptist get beheaded? Because he went up to Herod and he says, hey, you are doing something wrong. You are sleeping with your brother's wife. You got to stop that. Well, he had his head chopped off. So we are commanded to be engaged. And we have examples in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And when you say, well... You know, there was a couple that I got to meet out on the West Coast, and they said, you know what, you know, we always thought that, well, abortion is not for us, but we don't want to tell somebody else what to do, until they heard us talk about how we treat the babies in the womb as as patients. And they said, you know, if these patients were on the outside and someone was doing them harm, I would defend them. I would do everything I could to protect them. There's really no difference between the baby on the inside and the baby on the outside, we are doing laser vascular surgery and saving the lives of babies on the inside. We are doing spina bifida corrective surgery, blood transfusions. Um, it's just amazing how we are treating them in the womb as patients. And if they have rights, it is the job and the duty of all people to recognize those rights which come from God and to defend them. Men and women, do we go in with a condemning attitude? No, because we've got to think about our own lives and the own bad decisions that we've made and the, our own things that we've said that we regret. We let them know that we love them and we let them know that Jesus loves them and that He, you know, when you look at uh, some, you know, 51:5, you know, the psalmist says that, uh, you know, were we sinners from birth? Yes and and we were sinners from the time of conception. So if we were sinners from the time of conception, we have to look at Romans 5, 8, which says, while we were still sinners, God loved us all enough that he sent his son, he died on the cross, he conquered death, he rose again three days later for sinners. Well, if Romans 5.8 says God loved us that much that he sent his son for sinners. But then Psalm 51.5 says that we're sinners from the moment of conception. That's an amazing love for the preborn and all of us. But if God loved the preborn that much, it's at least our duty to do everything we can to defend the preborn when God loved them enough to send his son for them.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Unpacked podcast. We're so thankful for your time. We hope and pray that these encourage your faith and walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at faithunpacked.com. We'd also invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting site. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email at faithunpacked at gmail.com. And we invite you back next time as we continue to unpack our faith together.